Welcome to the March of History. I'm your host, Trevor Furness. And co-host, Brennan Furness. And we are here today with episode 16 of the March of History. We have a working title of the episode called Subduing Spain. It may change, but I think that's what we're going to call it. And it's a jam-packed episode about Caesar's pro-praetorship or his governorship in further Spain, which we would call today Andalusia. But before we get to Caesar and all of his adventures, I just want to make a few uh, announcements or corrections. Last episode, I had said that the Claudii were one of the founding families of Rome. I've since looked into that, and that's actually not the case. They were a Sabine family, which was a tribe or city-state or group that Rome was at war with in its very early days. And the Claudii family defected from the Sabines and brought over a bunch of their troops to the Romans and then helped defeat the Sabines. So they were you know, pretty clever and slick and slimy from day one, but they weren't a founding family of Rome. I also said that they might be older than the Julii. That's not the case since the Julii, which is Julius Caesar's line, uh, goes back possibly to the kings of Rome or probably to the kings of Rome or during that time. Just so you know, I put all of our corrections of anything that I screw up on in the summary of each episode after the fact, just because we're not doing scripted audio. If I wrote everything down ahead of time, I'm sure I wouldn't say anything wrong or, or would rarely do so. But when we're just speaking up the top of our heads, sometimes things come up and I say something and then I look, up, look it up later and, oh, that's not correct. So just so that you're aware. Now, a few other things. If all of our listeners could please give us a rating in the podcast store, if you listen on an Apple device, that helps the podcast to grow immensely, especially if it's of the five-star variety. We would really appreciate that. And if you write something about us too, it doesn't have to be long, just something short, sweet, and to the point. That helps the podcast to grow because Apple decides on which podcast to promote based on how many reviews they have and the kind of feedback that they're getting. Finally, our Instagram, just to remind you, is at the March of History. Go ahead and follow it. And the Twitter is at March underscore history. Or you can shoot us an email with some feedback, things that you liked about the episodes or things that you did not like about the episodes at the March of History at gmail.com. That's the March of History at gmail.com. And feel free to share these episodes with friends, family, anybody who you know is interested in history. We want to grow the podcast as much as possible and spread it out to the world. So without further ado, if you're ready, Brendan, we'll get started on Caesar's adventures in Spain. I'm ready. All right. So we left off last time with Caesar kind of getting the hell out of Rome after the whole Bonadilla fiasco. Claudius sneaking in, dressed as a woman, getting caught, having or attempting to have an affair with Caesar's wife. Caesar divorced his wife, got out of Rome quick before they could call him to any more hearings or put him on trial. And he actually left before he was even voted funds and confirmed by the Senate, which was an unusual and perhaps even illegal thing to do. But he didn't want to be in Rome. Yeah, it's interesting, just like the actual practical... So he would have he would have left to some basically some foreign country. I mean, it's still part of the empire, but you show up there. I mean, who do you even talk to? Like, if you haven't been appropriated the the funds yet, you haven't been assigned or officially uh, given the order to take the position. Who do you even go to? Or where do you even go in Spain to talk to? So it's kind of you know definitely a bold move by Caesar. Yeah, well, the province he's going to is called Further Spain, or that's you know what the translation is in English, but they would have called it Hispania Ulterior, and it's basically modern-day Andalusia in the very south of Spain. 
I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing there was a capital of the province where the governor would have sat and, and held court. And so he would basically go there with his retinue, with his lictors, and show up and let them know that he's taking over. And it wouldn't be some huge surprise to the, to the current governor because he would have known Caesar. He knows he's part of the Senate. He knows he was just a praetor a year beforehand. He's got lictors. He's a member of a patrician family. So it's unlike this guy's just showing up and making that up, right? Yeah, yeah. But still, yeah, it, it is an unusual and kind of bold move. Uh, definitely take some confidence to show up when you haven't been confirmed by the Senate and just make everybody believe that you have. Anyway, so Crassus, as we said last time, his, his creditors wouldn't let him out of Rome at first. Crassus guaranteed 830 talents, which is a, a good amount of money, but nowhere near the, the 25 million sesterci that Caesar owed. So Caesar leaves Rome and starts heading to Spain. And as he heads out of the city, he actually smuggles. You remember we talked about that court case where Caesar yanks on the one king's beard? Remember that, Brendan? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a hanger, yeah. Yeah, it's not an important case. It's just kind of uh, gives a flair or, or some flavor of his personality. Well, he had lost that case, and his Numidian client, rather than handing him over to the king to be thrown in some jail or tortured, Caesar hid him in his house for the remainder of the year. And now that Caesar's actually leaving Spain, he smuggles this man out within his retinue and sets the man free, basically. Essentially, letting everybody know that Caesar looks out for his clients and come hell or high water, he's going to make sure that they don't get turned over for imprisonment and, and torture. Yeah, that's interesting that I wonder if it was so clear cut if he knew like it's definitely going to be a better decision to look out for the clients rather than worry about what will people think that I'm, I'm kind of uh, yeah completely disregarding the law that I lost this case and defended this person and then now I'm, I'm hiding them after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he, I wonder what the repercussions would have been if he did get caught versus the the reward of creating a brand that you always protect your clients whether you win or lose. It's a good question. I'm sure some people didn't like it, but I'm I'm guessing it fosters a very loyal clientele and very loyal people that are supporters of Caesar because they know if they ever get into a bind, Caesar's going to look out for them no matter what. Even if the law may be unfair to them, Caesar's going to find a way to protect them. Yeah, I know me personally, I would prefer working with someone that, you know, that I can trust like that, that will kind of, where they can, it works in the app for me. Yeah, is it going to be purely by the book where they're happy to hand you over to torture and, and execution? Yeah, by I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want some kind of machine defending me that's just going to, yeah, it's going to be, okay, that's, that's what the ruling was, so you're going to get executed now. Yeah, he shows that he has compassion for the guy. Now, on the whole retinues, like Caesar's retinue and, and his lictors and everybody else, because he brings a staff with him to Spain, on their way to Spain, they pass through a small Gallic village. They, have to, they didn't go by sea, they went by land, so they're traveling over the Alps. And Caesar's companions see this squalid little village, and they start laughing at it, and they wonder aloud if the people in this little village canvassed for offices like they do in Rome or had great rivalries between great men like Rome did. And they thought the whole idea was funny and ridiculous. And Caesar responds to them. And there's a few different translations of this, but the gist is, as Caesar says to them, quote, I'd rather be the first man in this village than the second man in Rome, end quote. And that says a lot about Caesar's personality 
And there's some sources that say it may have been apocryphal, meaning that it's more of a demonstration of his personality and didn't literally happen. We don't have any way of knowing. But it does say a lot about Caesar, the idea that he would rather be the first man in a small little village in Gaul than the second man in Rome. Yeah, it really reminds me of, and I don't know if you're getting to this, but that one story about Alexander, how he thought he comes across the one, what was it, some kind of philosopher that basically lived the life of a homeless person or someone in squalor. Yeah. And what, so he, he doesn't listen to anyone and he's living this, this miserable kind of, I mean, he's choosing to do it, but he's living this miserable life, but at the same time, disregarding all the societal constructs, all the rules in life. And while he's leading no one, he's also not following anyone. And so I think Alexander said that he'd rather be that guy because he's not, subject to anyone's uh, control or anything like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story too. And I think we could definitely do a great podcast on Alexander. But I think the story goes, the guy was sleeping in like a barrel, something extremely uncomfortable. He's basically homeless, but he's a famous philosopher in the city. And Alexander comes there with his men and, and he stands over the guy who's laying down and I don't know if it's a barrel or whatever he's sleeping in. It's not something nice. And Alexander asks him what he would want most in the world. And the man says, for you to get out of my son, because Alexander's standing over him and blocking the sun. <laughs> and he's saying this to Alexander the Great, not always a kind guy. But Alexander thought that this was such an amusing thing to say to a great king like himself, that he said that he, if he wasn't Alexander, he would like to be that philosopher. Yes, I mean, in this case, it pays, you know, paid off big time to be bold uh, in the face of someone that's very powerful. It yeah. reminds me again of, you know, back to Rome now, when Pompey said to, as you referenced in the previous podcast, when Pompey said to Sola that the people like the, the rising sun more than the, the setting sun, you could easily say something like that to someone in such high stature, end up getting executed in that time, but for, in those two cases, ended up paying off. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And the Alexander story, we just told that off the top of our heads. We didn't plan that or anything. So if there's some details wrong, we apologize, but it's the general gist of the story. So Caesar heads over to Spain. He's a pro-praetor, which, as we discussed before, you would be a quaestor in Rome, and then you'd be a pro-quaestor in the provinces. You'd be a praetor in Rome, then you'd be a pro-praetor or a governor in one of the provinces usually one of the lesser provinces. And then you'd be a consul in Rome and then a proconsul, the one of the more important provinces. And it basically, you're just a governor of the province. You have whole, entire autonomy over the province. You are supposed to defend the province from outside incursions. You're supposed to run the administration of the province, run the civil courts, uh, solve disputes, create a good environment for the subjects, et cetera, et cetera. It's also a chance for all these guys to enrich themselves. This is what all the Roman senators do. Borrow money on your way to the top, and then once you get to governorships, you basically fleece the people of all the wealth you can. Now, Caesar is actually not big on doing that himself. He doesn't seem to have fleeced the people. Rather, he would go to a province and look for a war to start and make money that way. And that way, he didn't destroy the Roman province that he was in and found a way to, to gain glory while doing it. And when he gets to Spain, Spain's not in a good place. Spain is still suffering from the effects of the Quintus Sertorius Civil War. And that's not a name you have to remember, but I'll just kind of remind you that Quintus Sertorius was, was Marius's cousin. And he fought a long civil war against Rome after Marius died. 
And it was Pompey who was sent to Spain and finally put down the, I mean, you could call it a rebellion or ended the civil war, but Spain is still hurting from this. It's interesting that, I mean, when you look at the map, you look at the years over time and then, you know, the, the red from the Roman empire where it marks where the, the empire extended to, you never really think about like, there might be these, these huge fluctuations, civil wars going on. And, and, you know, even though it's in the empire, it's still not necessarily, um, you know, it'd be like in the U S it'd be all of a sudden Washington state is rebelling against us. We have to go put down a rebellion. So it's, it's sort of definitely a different concept of a, than, you know, the modern day uh, nation state. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's indicative of an empire versus a modern day nation where empire has its rules over a variety of cultures and peoples, and most of which is doing so by force, not by choice. And they're not all the same ethnicity. They're not all the same. They don't speak the same language per se. And they're, you know, maybe not always happy, but no, it's a good point. You just see these maps of these solid red, and this is how far the Roman empire stretched, but they don't really tell the details of, Hey, this part of the area is almost ungovernable. People just run crazy there. And this part, nobody bothers to touch because there's no money there. So we let them run wild. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't give the details like that. Yeah, no, you, you just see the red the red covering, you know, over the, the map around the Mediterranean. You don't see all the other, definitely a lot of details in there. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say, I've read a lot of different books. And a, a lot of times you don't hear any detail on Caesar's pro-praetorship in Spain. I don't know why. They just kind of say, oh, yeah, Caesar went to Spain, had a good war, and then comes back to Rome. And that's what they leave it at. So I, for a long time, thought that there must be no primary sources for it. But then I was looking into it, and a lot of the primary sources don't say anything. But there is one, Cassius Dio. So we're going to go off of him a lot for this podcast, for this episode. But I thought it'd be good for us to actually flesh out, since this is a biography podcast on Julius Caesar to actually flesh out what he does in Spain because it is interesting stuff. It's not boring. So I don't know why everybody leaves it out all, all the time. Yeah. And I think in your case, Trevor, since you're traveling to Spain, it'll definitely be a lot more interesting for us to see some of those photos when you're out there as we're talking about what Caesar's done in Spain. Even if it's a, a few weeks down the road, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to try to get to these areas that Caesar fights in and that Caesar rules in and see if I can get pictures for the podcast onto our Instagram. And also, I'm going to put, when this episode airs, I'm going to post on Instagram maps of the areas where Caesar's fighting and that we're talking about. So if you want to pull up the Instagram, you'll be able to follow along easier and see the actual maps of, hey, where is near or further and near Spain? Where is uh, the area that Caesar's fighting in? You'll be able to follow that much easier. But getting back to Caesar's governorship, by the time he gets there, it's suffering bad from the effects of the Civil War. On top of that, banditry has been a way of life for generations for many people that live in the mountainous areas of the Iberian Peninsula, which is the area that Spain and Portugal are, are located on. Because in these mountains, farming is very difficult. They can't make that much food, so they supplement their income by being bandits, by robbing different trains of merchants and trade and stealing it. Now, this is not good for a Roman governor. Having so many bandits so close, always stealing stuff from the local merchants, so Caesar looks to put an end to it. And and just in general, much of the area is lawless, and, and Rome never likes that. They want to govern, they want to they want an organized, well-governed province. This makes me think back to, 
I mean, the way that you just described it, how it's kind of these people for generations have been bandits and have been doing so basically as a living because they can't find a living in some other way. And so it's basically like a, it's like a trade. It's like how they make their living. So, which then makes sense why back a few episodes ago, Pompey, in the case for, uh, for pirates, basically bandits of the sea, he was able to just resettle them, give them some farmland, and they were plenty willing to uh, give up their bandit life to, to just make it an honest living that way. So you would think that the same would apply in this case, but yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I I do think that the pirates knew that as a choice between death by Pompey and the massive amount of resources the Roman state had voted him or settle on some nice farmland. So, yeah, but no, it's a good point. We'll, we'll see how the bandits react to us, to what, you know, Caesar's offer. But it is kind of funny what you said about them being bandits because I, I was thinking about that. It's almost like in today's societies you might have more of a, a welfare state where the richer area is taxed and some of that money goes to the poorer areas to help them out financially. And you may agree with that. You may disagree with that, but that's much the way that the world works nowadays. But this is almost forced subsidization of these poorer areas. They are forcing the richer areas to give them some money and to help them along by being bandits. It's kind of funny that way. The bandits are kind of their position by taking money from these wealthier areas. They're they themselves, not the the government, not the, the empire, but they themselves are taking it into their own hands to forcibly, as if you know, someone today were that's low income would literally take money or belongs from someone more wealthier than them. Yeah, forcing the wealthier areas of Spain to redirect the wealth to them. <laughs> now, right, yeah. granted, I don't think they're contributing much in doing that, but it's, it's just a kind of a funny way to look at it. But Caesar, he arrives in the province and he, outside of all these problems, is just determined to start a war. Why? Because one, he wants glory. Above all, Caesar wants glory. He's an ambitious man. And two, he needs money to pay his debts. He barely got out of Rome, only because Crassus guaranteed a lot of these debts for him that he was able to actually get out. But Caesar needs money to show his credit, or one, to pay back the most doubtful of his creditors, and two, to show them, like, I'm a great investment still and just wait until my proconsulship in which I'll have an even bigger command and be able to pay you back even more money. So when he gets to the province, he has some troops already, but he immediately raises 10 new cohorts. And to give you an idea of how much that is, there's about 480 men to a cohort if they're at full strength. So about 4,800 men. And there's about 10 cohorts to a legion. So the sources say he raised 10 new cohorts. He essentially raised a new legion. And a cohort contains six centuries, which is another unit that the Roman military used. And the century is about 80 legionaries, not 100, like you'd think, but 80. But we're going we're to go into the Roman military organization in more depth when Caesar gets to Gaul, because he spends nine, almost 10 years fighting Gaul. So we'll definitely talk about it more in depth there, but just want to kind of give you a little bit of overview of how it's organized. I'll say when he gets to Gaul later on, he raises additional legions illegally without permission of the Senate, which makes me wonder if he had permission to raise these 10 cohorts. Maybe he just did that of his own volition and didn't ask the Senate. I don't know. None of the sources mention that, but it makes me curious. But like yeah, you said, yeah, Brandon, no. he, he increases the troops by about 50%. 
So he, he significantly increased the amount of troops that he has in the province. Caesar leads his men into a mountainous area of the Iberian Peninsula, a region between the Tagus and Duero rivers, and an area that they refer to as Lusitania, kind of like the ship Lusitania. And again, if I'm not saying these, these rivers right, these names, I apologize, but these are the first times I've read about them. The Tagus or Tagus and Duero. And I think in Portugal, when the river Duero crosses into Portugal, it's Duero, I want to say. And to give you an idea of where that is, so that is in basically northern Portugal and in the area of Spain around Salamanca, Spain. So they cross from Spain into Portugal and end in the Atlantic Ocean. And, and so Caesar goes into the mountainous area between these two rivers to try to pick a fight, essentially, with these bandits and, and lawless areas. And I'll put that up on Instagram for you guys, too, so you can see that. And the tribes that he's marching against are called the Lusitani, which makes sense because they're from Lusitania, and the Kalaikai or Kalaisai. I mean, the tribe names aren't important, but I'm just kind of letting you know who they are. And so specifically he heads to what they call the Hermian Mountain Range, according to Cassius Dio. And today I believe that that's the Serra de Estrella in Portugal. And, you know, if you have a minute and you're interested in maps, you might want to pull that up on Google Maps. You can just Google it real quick. It's up to you, but I just figured I'd let you know some modern day landmarks. You can find it. And so there he gets to one of the hilltop communities that's in the area. There's a lot of these hilltop communities are like little fortresses. They don't do a lot of farming, I guess, or their farming's not very good, so they, they end up being bandits a lot. And he commands one of these hilltop communities to surrender so he can resettle them on the plains in fertile ground. Now, Caesar fully expects them to refuse this offer. This is kind of an empty offer. I mean, I'm sure he would have re resettled them if they said yes, but he knew that they weren't going to say yes. And sure enough, they refuse. Now Caesar has the justification to start a war. So Caesar attacks the town and takes it by force and conquers it. Yeah, you have to think, like, what What are these in that? I mean, maybe they develop like, a culture where they now value the, the banditry over, you know, some kind of uh, more honest living, like farming or something. And then so they feel like if one of them speaks up and says, oh, why don't we, this doesn't seem like a bad idea, why don't we just take the, the land and give up the, the bandit life? It might be like no one wants to speak up and they'd be seen as, as being soft or something. And so all of them, as part of like a group mentality, just end up causing none of each other to uh, to speak up. And, and so they, they just uh, yeah end up resisting Caesar instead of taking the, the farmland. Yeah, I think in those times, especially in those times, but even today, there's kind of a resistance to switch from the lifestyle that your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and their great-grandfathers have all lived in this long, rich tradition. And a lot of these communities, their culture is based on the land that they're in. And now you're asking them to, or telling them to leave that land behind and I mean, their, their cultures doesn't make any sense anymore. It's a mountain culture. And now they're out in the hills and they, can't, they don't have access to the same things they used to have access to. They're just not, and, and they're provincial peasants. They're not going to want to leave the area that they're in. They'd rather die defending it, right? So it's not at all surprising they didn't say, sure. Yeah. And that's kind of valid because, I mean, back then, you know, if you give up what you're currently doing, what all your ancestors did and do something else, I mean, there's no guarantee that's going to work out for you. You know that. 
since it has it has worked in the past for for your ancestors and for yourself that this model of what you're doing works you don't know what's going to happen if you try something else and and the consequences if you do do that and, and it doesn't turn out well could be life or death so yeah but and kind who of, knows, you can't you can't blame them who knows if they can trust caesar he's this right. new governor he comes in they probably don't know much about the romans because this is not this is not an area that's part of the roman provinces this is just caesar's just marched out into these hillside communities and is telling them that he's going to resettle them and they're probably like who the hell are you and i have no idea who you are i don't trust that you're going to resettle us in some new area and i don't want to be resettled so the one hill community gets conquered and the the other ones get nervous the other nearby hill towns and cities and they fear they're next and for good reason because they are next and they start transporting their wives and children and most valuable possessions north across the duaro river which again is is the Portuguese name for that Duero River. And while they're doing this, Caesar moves quick and he attacks their cities and takes them all by force while half of them are helping to transport all these people across that river to get them safe. The men of the cities who, like I said, a lot of them weren't in the cities when this happened, then gather up to try to fight Caesar. Now that their valuables and their loved ones are, are across the river to the north of them, And what they do is they have a strategy to try to lure Caesar's army into a trap. They put their herds of animals out in the open in front of them to lure Caesar's men into going after them and scattering. And that that probably sounds kind of funny to us today, you know, them having their cattle and goats out in front of them who, who would scatter their army for that. But that would be material wealth in the Roman times and to Caesar's troops who are probably hungry. Look at all this, look at all this meat down there in the valley. And the Spaniards, maybe, and, and Portuguese people, or I mean, the, the tribes were probably so scared, they fled and just left their herds behind. And so it's free for the taking. And a less disciplined army would have gone after that and would have just thrown caution to the wind. But Caesar saw the trap for what it was and ignored the animals. And this goes to the, it's one thing if the commander sees the trap, but it's another thing for him to be able to prevent his troops from going after the obvious wealth that they see in this trap so it, it basically it speaks to the roman military's discipline that he's able to to prevent his troops from going after this trap and keep them disciplined and in marching order yeah i guess you have to think if you're caesar whoever's leading the army or even you know the soldiers themselves that i mean if you're if you defeat these people first there'll be no you can still take the the cattle the livestock the whatever you know, either way, but this way, if you defeat them first, you know that there's no risk they're going to ambush you. So definitely, there's no real gain, even short term, to going right after the cattle. Unless you think, I don't know, they're going to scatter or something, you won't be able to get them. But Yeah, and I think the hill people are, are playing checkers, and Caesar's and the, Roman ter- and the Roman military machine are playing chess, right? So Caesar keeps his men together and it finds the actual enemy army and attacks them instead puts them to flight defeats them and it's it's a success for him now the other inhabitants because this is not all the people of this mountain range but the other inhabitants of the hermian mountains withdraw to a safe distance to get away from caesar and because they know that they're probably gonna be next if they stay in one place and they actually plan an ambush against caesar and his army on their way back to the province they had marched to this area of Spain and Portugal via one path, and these people in the mountains know these paths and know these 
passes through the mountain far better than Caesar and his army is ever going to know them because they live there and they grow up there and they've been there for generations. So they have an ambush planned. Now Caesar learns of this ambush. You got to imagine it's through some kind of intelligence network, either spies or scouts, or they captured enemy scouts and maybe coerced them or tortured them into giving up this information. But Caesar learns of this plan. And so he decides to take a different path back to avoid the ambush and does and, and avoids the enemy ambush altogether, avoids, avoids the trap. And then he later confronts this same group on ground of his choosing and defeats them. And when he defeats them, he starts chasing them and they run all the way to the Atlantic Ocean where Portugal is on the Atlantic Ocean. And the tribes retreat to an island off the coast of Portugal. And Caesar has only a few ships with him and not enough to really get his troops over and onto the island. So Caesar orders his troops to build additional rafts and transports a number of his men over onto this island. And the man in charge of this expedition that Caesar put in charge of the expedition drops the troops off on the island, not all of his troops, but a portion of his army, drops them off on the island at a breakwater. And this is where... The description by the ancient author Cassius Dio gets kind of confusing, but it seems that they dropped these guys off in low tide in an area that was easy to land on. And then the tide came in and the ships didn't have a safe area to land on anymore and had to push off. And suddenly the soldiers are surrounded. So they're they're surrounded by by what? The By the enemy army. The enemy army retreated onto this island. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the enemy islands, or sorry, the enemy army has hid on this island from Caesar. He's aware of it. He sends these troops over. They drop them off with the transports. The tides change, and all these Roman soldiers are now stuck on the island with the enemy, and they're very outnumbered. Now, these troops are then attacked by the enemy on the island, and all but one of them died fighting. So this is kind of a disaster for Caesar. Now, it's funny, this one man who survives is either the bravest and toughest fighter of the group or the biggest coward. We don't know which. I'm going to imagine he's the toughest fighter and and bravest guy because I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But his name actually survives. And he's an unimportant person to history. He's unimportant to anything future in the story. But I want to give him a shout out because he was a survivor. His name was Publius Scavius. And they say that he lost his shield in the fighting and received many wounds fighting and then eventually jumped into the water and escaped by swimming. Now, I don't know if he jumped in the water while his friends were still fighting and dying and escaped, or if he waited till he was the last guy and said, hey, this is not going anywhere, and jumps into the water, and he swims back to the boats. But I thought it was kind of a cool little anecdote about the battle. Yeah, it is a tough decision, you know. Even, But you have to think, even if you did see your comrades, your people fighting there, is it better to swim across the ocean anyway back so that you can convey what happened back to the central army and then bring more people. But I guess in this case, even if he did stand his ground and not make it back, then Caesar would have, you know, realized, okay, we haven't heard back from them. Obviously this thing happened. So I guess they would have, it wouldn't be like a, a dire circumstance if he did relay that information. But, but yeah, it's interesting to think about like a tough moral judgment like that. Yeah, and what I gather from reading it, it doesn't specifically say, but it seems that the guy swam to the boats, not to the mainland. I don't think I think the mainland was pretty far out, so it would be a okay, heck of a yeah. swim. But I'm sure a lot of these guys probably couldn't even swim. 
not everybody back in ancient times could swim. So for many of them, it probably wasn't an option. And this guy knew how to swim and saw the writing on the wall and, and got the heck out of there. But it sounds like he was fighting pretty hard and was wounded a bunch of times, but did survive. So it, it's pretty incredible that this guy may have done nothing else with his life but that. But 2,000 years later, we remember his name. It's kind of yeah, wild, no, it's right? Incredible. Yeah, when you think about it like And that. only we only remember it because he served in Julius Caesar's army. So that's where much of history is dark. And you have somebody like Julius Caesar comes along and lights it up because everybody writes about him. They all write about his deeds. They write about everything that happened around him. So just being in proximity to Caesar almost casts a reflective light on you. And so by doing something in connection to Caesar, you can get remembered by history because he's so remembered that that light reflects on you a little bit. It's kind of, it's fascinating that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now this is a big defeat for Caesar. This is not good. And a lesser commander would have given up and gone home or would have panicked. But Caesar does neither. He doesn't panic. He doesn't give up. What he does is he summons a fleet from what they called Gades, which is modern-day Cadiz in southern Spain in Andalusia. And he has these ships row around, or presumably around the peninsula to this area of Portugal, and then transports his whole army across onto the island. The enemy then surrenders without a fight because they were starving anyway and knew that they stood no chance against Caesar's full army. And Caesar, in a precursor to what he would do in Gaul, shows them all mercy and accepts their surrender, which he didn't have to do. He could have butchered them all to the last man like they did to his troops, but he does accept their surrender and and Caesar becomes famous for his mercy, which it's different than what you might think of as mercy today. Because when Caesar shows mercy to people, what he's really doing is he's showing that he has nothing to fear from them. That he's so much more powerful, so much more grand, and so much more capable than they are that he can afford to forgive their trespasses against him because he's not even worried about them. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, it, leading up to this point, like Caesar following them across the, the country in Spain, all the way to Portugal, modern day Portugal onto the island once it fails and then again after that finally gets them and i thought for sure he's going to execute them because i thought the whole idea is that you can't have any tolerance of you know these people that were going to perform this treachery of uh, ambushing your army you can't have any kind of precedent for that in spain and then so i thought for sure he'd torture them or you know have some kind of punishment so yeah i was, I was wondering you know is it because they they seem so helpless and then now you just said that it could have just been an even bigger display of power to say, I don't even need to uh, make an example of, of these people because they're not, they're not worth making an example of. Yeah. In other words, you destroy what you fear. And Caesar does not fear them, so he has no need to destroy them. It, it's interesting. And, and even with his Roman enemies later, he will forgive them again and again. And anybody else, you'd think it would be almost stupid to forgive somebody and let them go, and they turn right back around and start fighting you again. Why would you do that? That could easily end up losing you the war if you're just letting these people continually fight you. But it's almost like he's so supremely confident in his own abilities that he's not worried worried if this person turns and uh, declares war against him again because he defeated them once, he'll defeat them again. He's not worried, but he shows how powerful he is by forgiving these people and showing he has no fear of them. And I don't, I don't know that I'm 
entirely explaining it, but we'll explain it with examples as we go through his life. And you'll get an idea that Caesar's version of mercy is not necessarily what we think of as mercy today. It is the act itself is, but the reasons why he shows his mercy are often very different. Anyway, he takes this new fleet that he has and he ends up rowing it up and down parts of the coast of Portugal. And the local barbarians there, I mean, and I guess if you could call them barbarians, were terrified of this because they've never seen ships with oars before. They're not used to this, and they're confused by these ships that Caesar's rowing up and down the coast. They look terrifying, big warships with tons of soldiers on them. So at least one of these cities on the coast that sees this just surrenders with no fight out of fear alone to Caesar and submits to Rome. Yeah, and, and to me that's kind of funny because I I always thought of ships with sails being more advanced than one to the oars. But I mean, I, don't, I guess maybe it depends on the region or maybe I'm just off on that. Well, I don't know that they had. I don't know what the the Portuguese coast had. I don't know if they had ships with sails or if yeah, they had much. Had, yeah. Maybe they had like small rowboats, but I'd never seen these kind of triremes, these three level of of oars that Caesar had. If that was even the ship that he had, they don't they don't say. There's not as much detail about this part, but they had never seen ships like this, and it scared the heck out of them. Now, in all this, this is a major victory for Caesar. He has led his troops successfully. They had begun to trust him. He didn't lead them into any ambushes. He saved them from death multiple times by avoiding these traps, which an incompetent commander would have walked them right into. So his troops are very thankful for that and very impressed by his abilities, and they declare him imperator in the field. And so what that means is that he is now eligible to apply to the Senate for a triumph, which you'll remember is that big parade where you ride through the streets with your face painted like a a god and everybody cheering your name and you show slaves from the armies that you conquered marching in front of you and posters showing how many people you've killed and how many cities you've sacked etc etc and the senate agrees and they award caesar this triumph he can't apply for the triumph unless his army declares him imperator in the field so it's kind of a a one-two you can't even apply to the senate unless they declare you that but then the Senate still has to confirm it, and, and Caesar gets both, and they confirm his triumph. And a triumph, in many ways, is even more prestigious than a consulship because you might expect, if you're very talented, to be consul once in your life. A triumph was not guaranteed, only if you had some great military victory. And here Caesar is, not even a consul yet, and gets his first triumph. So they, they really considered Hispania ulterior, further Spain. So... I guess they must have really considered it to be like still an unstable region to because a, a triumph I always thought of that as like kind of new territory that was gained or like you know some big victory. So I guess they must have thought that Spain was in that level of unrest that that qualified as a a big victory or like a conquering a group of people. Well, it doesn't necessarily need to lead to new territory. You just need to have a major victory over a foreign enemy. You could not award triumphs for victories over fellow Romans, where it was very taboo. You're okay. not supposed to do that because a civil war is a sad occasion. You don't want to be championing the fact that you destroyed other Romans. And there's actually a, a lesser version of a triumph, too, if you had a smaller victory that was worthy of acclaim, but maybe not to the level of a triumph called an ovation. And that's where we get the word today, ovation, from. Now, Caesar's smart with everything that he does on this campaign, too, in that he makes a lot of money from, from all this war. And you wonder, well, these were barbarians in the backwaters of Spain and Portugal. Where, where did this money come from? 
And nobody says, but I got to imagine that it's really from capturing the foreign peoples and selling them as slaves. It's a lot of times how the Roman commanders would make money in war in areas that didn't have a lot of wealth. You could still sell the people themselves and make a lot of money that way. And like I said, no source says that Caesar does that, but I'm just, that's some guesswork on my part. But Caesar makes sure to send a good amount of the money that he makes back to the Roman treasury, which may have been one of the reasons why the Senate was thankful to him and wanted to vote him a triumph because he made sure to play politics and send them a taste of the victory. Now, with the remaining the money that he still has, he pays off a portion of his debts, or at least a small portion, making his creditors happy, seeing that, hey, he's a worthy investment, he's a great soldier, he's a great commander, and we can keep on investing in him with confidence. He also makes sure to enrich his soldiers. It is a cardinal offense of commanders throughout history that keep all the riches for themselves and don't share it with their soldiers. It does not create a very loyal army and, and a very motivated army. So Caesar makes sure to enrich his soldiers. And that seems like such an obvious thing. Make sure you spread, spread the wealth to the people that did all the fighting. But throughout history, you, you will see again and again, people don't always do that. They're just naturally greedy or they just see the world in a different way and don't think that the, that the soldiers belong getting so much wealth. But Caesar makes sure always to take care of his soldiers, which is why throughout his lifetime, he will have fanatically loyal armies in a way that no Roman, even Marius and Sola, had seen before, his soldiers are fanatically loyal to him. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely seems like, you know, in a common theme that we've, we've touched on before, that in ancient Rome, it's definitely, for these, these great men, the more you see money as a means to an end, rather than, you know, the end itself, it's, it definitely um, is to your advantage and kind of just more of the of the culture in general to to value the the great deeds that you do more than the money that you get from them. So it, it definitely always seems to make sense or these these great people seem to be re- rewarded the most when they reinvest their their winnings. Yeah, it, it is interesting that way. There's no concept or or very little concept, unless your name is Crassus, of accumulate accumulating wealth just to have wealth and just to be rich. Uh, we've said this before in the podcast, but it's worth saying again that the Romans, especially the aristocrats, saw wealth as a tool to be used in your political campaign to advance your career and to advance your interests. It was not the end itself because money brought no prestige. Money brought no glory. Money would not make you remembered by history. Power would. Great deeds would. Great accomplishments would. Defeating your enemies would all make you win you glory and make you remembered by history money itself would not but money could help you do all those things now the reaction to caesar's successful campaign in spain is actually quite interesting because many people were actually surprised by his victory in spain according to tom holland's book rubicon because many in rome still saw him as a loose belted dandy and did not expect this kind of military ability out of him he was the guy that dressed fancy, that slept around, that was very urbane and sophisticated. And yes, he had won that civic crown when he was younger, but a lot of his enemies like to smear him as being a feminine and maybe not as masculine as the different opt members like Cato. Well, he goes out to Spain and he's leading armies in the field, the most masculine possible thing a Roman could think of leading Roman military units in the field and defeating foreign enemies. And he does this spectacularly and wins himself a triumph. 
So he proves a lot of these people that doubted him wrong, and it makes it a lot harder for his enemies to make him out to be some kind of effeminate, weak dandy when here he is, this conquering general. But Caesar's governor of a province. He's not just there as a general to fight wars. So he makes sure to take care of his province as well. When he gets to the province, there's widespread debt throughout much of further Spain. So this is likely a problem that Caesar could relate to being in massive debt himself. And it's a problem that I can relate to having had massive student loans when I graduated and having to pay those off. So that hits close to me as well. But Caesar finds a compromise between the debtors and the creditors. And he decrees that the debtors should pay two-thirds of their income to creditors until the debt is paid, and that they were allowed to keep the remaining one-third as their own to support themselves and their families. Now, that may sound harsh to you or me, or I mean, that he required them to pay two-thirds of their income to their creditors and to their debts and only keep one third for their family. But this is probably actually a a good compromise that they would be happy with because if it wasn't for that, the creditor would probably want 100% of their wealth or 90% of it. And so Caesar put a cap on that and said, these people need enough to live on, give them one third and pay two thirds to the creditors. To me, with student loans, I feel like I'd be happy to pay, you know, two thirds of my income as long as I'm not, as long as I'm not overpaying the debt. Yeah, that's why I hesitated when I said that part, because I definitely paid more than two-thirds of my income to my debts. But I didn't have a family. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a whole bunch of people to support. And I live in prosperous United States of America. I don't live in you know maybe poor land in, in southern Spain where you're eking out a living. So you know, it's yeah. maybe yeah, much definitely different. different. But Caesar finds the middle ground for these two different groups – And for doing this, he gains a reputation as being a fair person in the province. Throughout Spain, they all get to know Caesar, or throughout further Spain, they all get to know Caesar. They see the rulings that he makes on cases like this, and they say that he's a reasoned and fair individual that can find middle ground, can find compromise between people, and they like him for it because most governors didn't behave this way. They couldn't care less about the people. They just wanted to fleece them to get as much money out of them as possible and may have sided entirely with the lenders. Caesar does not. He also reorganizes the civil administration of the province. And then he also arbitrates disputes between different communities. And the final thing that he does is he suppresses human sacrifice in local cults. So this man is extremely busy. He's reorganizing civil administration. He's fighting wars. He's setting banking and lending practices. He's suppressing human sacrifice. He's arbitrating between disputes between communities. It it almost makes you wonder how can somebody do all these different things at once, but he was a Superman. He was the modern day CEO, except in ancient Roman times, constantly working. And the human sacrifice part is interesting. The fact that he suppresses those. The Romans often thought that human sacrifice was barbaric, and it was one of the few religious practices that they would actively try to suppress in the provinces. For the most part, they would let anybody that they ruled over believe in whatever religion that they wanted. It kept the people happy, it kept them quiet, and they didn't rebel if you didn't touch their religion. So the Romans were happy to let them believe in their own religions, except when it came to human sacrifice, which they would often suppress. 
The interesting part, though, is that the Romans, whenever they found themselves in a tight corner and things were tough for them, they would always resort to, or not always, but they would often resort to human sacrifice. And as recent as Marius's time, when the Teutones and the Cimbri, those are the German tribes that Marius fought, look like they're going to sweep down and, and attack Rome, the Romans resorted to human sacrifice. Now, off the top of my head, I don't think it was a Roman citizen. I think it was some Greek guy that they grabbed up and, and sacrificed, but I don't think he went willingly. But it's interesting that they could look down on it so much, but whenever things really mattered to them and they really got worried, they were happy to sacrifice somebody. Yeah, this is kind of fascinating because it, it makes me wonder that if in the back of their heads, if they really did somewhat believe and that this is an effective thing to do, especially in, in dire situations, like it might help you out. I wonder if in the back of their heads when they saw other people doing it, if it kind of spooked them out that they're making these big sacrifices to their gods, is that going to affect us in some way? Like, I wonder if it if they thought not only is it, you know, a backwards weird thing to do, but that it might actually have some kind of big kind of blood oath, whatever effect on them and, you know, cause them to, to, you know, have some big, big blunder, lose a lot of, lose a whole legion or something. That could be, I, I think that when people are infected with huge amounts of fear, like the Romans were during these times, they kind of revert to a very primal state. And so at one time, maybe their ancestors sacrificed humans. I don't, I don't know that for a fact. I'm just guessing. And they have since said that we're very civilized. We don't do things like that anymore. But when push comes to shove and it looks like a barbarian army is going to invade you, well, then all bets are off. And you're happy to give it a shot because maybe it'll work. Who knows? But you're not so civilized anymore when you're that afraid. You kind of revert to more of a primal state, is my opinion anyway. Now, another thing about Spain that they never mention any specifics, but they will later on, the sources, is that either in this trip to Spain as pro-Praetor or his earlier one as pro-Quaestor, but we think it was this current war that he fought as pro-Praetor, Caesar has his first epileptic fit. He was actually epileptic, meaning that he had seizures. And so this is he first discovers that in Spain. And the implications of this for somebody who is a senator giving speeches each day in the forum, who needs to appear healthy and strong and robust, and for a military man who's fighting enemies and needs to have all of his physical abilities at his disposal and mental abilities at his disposal in times of combat, and a general who's commanding battles and whose everybody's life depends on his decisions, to be having the back of your head at all times that you could just collapse and have a seizure any moment has to really eat at you, right? And make you worry and give you a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, especially back then when they didn't really have a, a good understanding of what's happening or that's the extent to which uh, it could get worse, that it must have really been a very mysterious and, and scary thing to have. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, have, you have no idea what, what it is that you're dealing with. Exactly, and they have no idea how to treat it. And I believe, and this is just off the top of my head, so don't quote me on this, but I believe the Romans felt that if you had epilepsy, you were cursed by the gods, which I can't imagine is a very good thing to have the people believing about you if you're running for offices in Rome, right? And, and you know, you want people to vote for you. You don't want them to believe that you're cursed by the gods. But it, it had to be on the back of his head for from this point on. Whenever he got up to give a speech in the Senate, whenever he got up to give a speech in front of the people, 
whenever he met with high distinguished senators, I could just collapse in a fit and, and you know, nobody would under, nobody would have any understanding of what's going on. And they certainly wouldn't be understanding to the point where they'd say, Oh, no problem. That happens. You just have a medical problem. They would think you're cursed by the gods. You're weak, blah, blah, blah. And, and judge you harshly for it. Not to mention even in Gaul, sometimes he'll find himself on the front lines with with his troops. And if you have an epileptic fit as you're fighting in battle, you're dead. Done for. And if you have an epileptic fit, a seizure as a commander, well, maybe your entire army's dead. Yeah, I mean, even today, with you, know, you have politicians like Hillary Clinton who had some health problems when she was giving a speech. Even today, you know, it's a, it's a reason people give. People won't just dismiss it as a health problem. And it happens to people. They'll see, is this person fit for office if they can't stay you know, healthy during a speech? That's a great point. Yeah, no, that's a great point that we really haven't changed so much today. So you can imagine if, if we judge our politicians so harshly today based on their health, and maybe it's for good reason, you could imagine that people in ancient Rome who weren't quite so anywhere near as knowledgeable about medical issues as we are today would have judged somebody way more harshly. There would have been way more taboos about it and way more of a negative connotation of having a health issue like that. But he will have epilepsy, obviously, for the rest of his life. But if we have any listeners that have epilepsy, I got to imagine that this would make you maybe feel good or even inspire you to know that somebody like Julius Caesar also had it because he was able to lead such an incredible life and accomplish so many great deeds Despite this disability or disease or whatever you would call it, you know it didn't hold him back at all. So obviously, there's, there's different degrees of having this issue, and, and there's different uh, severities, I'm sure. But still, it, it's an, expi- an inspiring example throughout history of somebody overcoming their disability to accomplish great deeds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to have someone, it sort of like clears a slate for, um, you know, if you have epilepsy, right? if you know that one of the greatest people of all time had this and they could do what they did, then you know, there's no, there's no reason that anyone should see epilepsy as a stain on what your potential could be. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously some people probably have more frequent seizures, seizures than other others, but still, I mean, Caesar was leading armies in battle. It is not many more nerve wracking times to have a seizure than then. So if he can do that, I'm sure, you know, it may inspire some people to believe that they can do certain jobs they worried about or, or something like that. I don't know. I, I just thought it was a kind of a cool twist in history. But Caesar finishes up his war and he leaves his province early again. Caesar's always in a rush. Anytime there's nothing new to do in the province, he's gone. And he heads back to Rome to organize his triumph and get ready to run for the consulship, the Roman version of the presidency. As a triumphing general, he's allowed to enter Rome with his army. That's the only exception. Other than that, armies are never allowed in Rome. So he has to wait outside of Rome until his triumph. And after his triumph, he will lay down command and can enter as a normal citizen. So until then, he's got to sit outside of Rome and can't go inside. Now, that's where we're going to end the podcast today. But next time, Caesar is going to or plan for his potential triumph He's going to run for the consulship. We're going to discuss Pompey's return from the East and what he accomplished there. And I promise you that Rome is never the same after Caesar's consulship. People may have felt one way about him before the consulship, 
But anybody who disliked him, it turns to pure hatred after his consulship. It's just such a polarizing year in Roman history. It is fascinating and, and worth digging into the detail on. So that's what we're going to begin to talk about next time on the March of History.